0: Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 17, 1 Samuel chapter 11. Last week, we ventured fairly deeply into territory that may at first glance seem unnecessary. But in fact, it's a needed piece of the puzzle to help us understand the goings-on in the book of Samuel. Now, that territory was the political landscape surrounding and directing so many of Samuel's and Saul's decisions. Now, we're certainly not going to rehash last week's lesson, but it is important to set the stage for today's study by summarizing the current condition of the 12 tribes that faced this newly crowned king of Israel. Israel was a a deeply divided family. There were three distinct factions that formed all of Israel at the time the demand for a king arose. And there is no doubt that this demand from many of Israel's tribal leaders reflected a kind of hope that perhaps a king would become a uniting force for the 12 tribes. The three factions I'm speaking of consisted of those two and a half tribes that lay to the east side of the Jordan River, who centuries earlier had made the decision to live over there rather than enter into the promised land. Okay, that was Reuben and Gad and about half of the clans that formed the tribe of Manasseh. And then there's Judah and Simeon down here to the south. They formed the southern end of Canaan. And then there was a coalition of around eight tribes at this time that occupied the fertile north of Canaan. Now it's not necessarily that these factions were outright enemies of one another, they certainly recognized that together they formed the nation founded by Jacob, their father. However, there were extremely serious rivalries, regular battles over autonomy, issues over which tribe ought to be preeminent over the others, unhappiness over territorial boundaries that at times they thought was unfair and constant sniping at one another over who best and most purely represented the true people of God and were inheritors of what Joshua and Moses founded. Now I know I said this numerous times last week, but I'm not sure it's possible to overstate it. If we want to actually understand what is happening from this point forward in the Old Testament, we have to become students of history. While God's providence directed mankind, and especially Israel, along a path with a very certain purpose, and towards a predetermined goal, it did so largely unseen and unnoticed. And in miraculous conjunction with men's free wills, somehow God's will was being accomplished all along the way. But always, always, those great and seminal events that are recorded in the Bible as these marvelous stories that some of us have heard since we were children in Sunday school... These were all done within the context of the world, the nation, the family, and the individual circumstances as they were at the time. Saul, King Saul now, was from the tribe of Benjamin. That is very understandable in the political situation of the day that a man from the tribe of Benjamin was selected to be Israel's first king Benjamin was in a very interesting geographic location, you see them right here represented by this kind of turquoise little piece of a puzzle right here they were a buffer region Benjamin's southern border was located um, to the south uh, against Judah's north right. Their northern border was located to Ephraim's south, of course, their north. And it put Benjamin in both an envious and a difficult position. There were loyalties within the clans that formed Benjamin that cut both ways. Not unlike the state of Virginia in our American Civil War. At the same time, the territory of Benjamin lay militarily and religiously in a very strategic location. Some of Israel's most important and traditionally hallowed secret sites lay in Benjamin's district. And militarily, Benjamin's territory ran along the Jordan River where some of the best fording points were located and thus running through benjamin running through benjamin was a very important highway and trade route again god operates providentially through mankind's daily circumstances so it was logical from a political perspective that a man from benjamin would become king but What spiritual reason or purpose might there have been for that selection? Well, there are a few that we can consider. According to the God pattern of map directions given to us in Scripture, East is always the most spiritually important and next to it, the South. The North, on the other hand, Was not only of least status, but we'll also find that each time Israel was conquered by an empire, they were exiled in what direction? To the north. And in times, Israel's enemies are going to enter Israel from the north. Where will the Battle of Armageddon be fought within Israel? In the north. Of Israel. Which tribes of Israel were conquered and assimilated into the Gentile world? Those called the ten lost tribes. The northern tribes. Benjamin was aligned at this time with the northern tribes who were the instigators of replacing God with a human king. Now another consideration is that Jacob, on his deathbed, essentially placed Judah in the preeminent position to become the leader over all Israelite tribes, Judah being part now a remember, of the southern coalition of tribes at this time. Now, let's recall for a moment what Jacob said about Judah in Genesis 49. All right? at his deathbed blessing of all of his twelve sons. Don't turn there, I'll just read it to you. Genesis, starting in Genesis 49.8, he said, Judah, your brothers will acknowledge you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. My son, you stand over the prey. He crouches down and stretches like a lion, like a lioness, who dares to provoke him. The scepter will not pass from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his legs, until he who comes uh, in obedience belongs, and it is he whom the peoples will obey. And tying his donkey to the vine, his donkey's colt to the choice grapevine, he washes his clothes in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. What a prophetic passage. So it would be altogether inappropriate for the Hebrews who were rebelling against God by demanding a king to be effectively rewarded by initially getting the leader that God intended that they would eventually have, a ruler from the tribe of Judah, and thereby receiving the blessings that would naturally accrue with it. On the other hand, Jacob in that same deathbed blessing, also prophetically described, or maybe we can even say divinely destined, the character of, of the tribe of Benjamin in this way, Genesis 49-27 Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in the morning devouring the prey in the evening still dividing up the spoils <laughs> being a ravenous wolf whereby the riches of the spoils of war is his chief concern is hardly a flattering description okay And certainly it wouldn't fit the divine ideal for a ruler of God's kingdom. But devouring prey, meaning the weak, and amassing spoils, meaning wealth, to be divided up among those who govern is perhaps the most admired and desired characteristics of a human king. Let's read 1 Samuel chapter 11 together. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it is page 308. Then Nachash, the Ammoni, the Ammonite, came up and set up camp to fight Yavesh Gilead. All the men of Yavesh said to Nachash, if you'll make a treaty with us, we'll be your subjects. Nachash the Ammonite replied, I'll do it on this condition, that all your right eyes be gouged out and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The leaders of Yavesh answered him, Give us seven days grace to send messengers throughout Israel's territory, then if no one will, will rescue us, we'll surrender to you. The messengers came to Gibeah, where Saul lived, and said these words in the hearing of the people. And all the people cried out and wept. And as this was going on, Saul came, following the oxen out of the field, and Saul asked, what's wrong with the people to make them cry like that? They told him what the men from Yavesh had said. The Spirit of God fell upon Saul when he heard this, blazing furiously with anger. He seized a pair of oxen and cut them into pieces. Then he sent them throughout the territory of Israel with messengers saying, Anyone who doesn't come and follow Saul and Samuel, this is what will be done to his oxen. The fear of Adonai fell on the people and they came out with united hearts. He reviewed them in Bezek. There were 300,000 from the people of Israel, the men of Judah numbered 30,000. To the messengers that had come, they said, Tell the men of Yavesh Gilead, tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you will have been rescued. The messengers returned and told the men of Yavesh, and they were overjoyed. And then the men of Yavesh said to Nahash, Tomorrow we'll surrender to you, and you can do with us whatever you like. The next day, Shaul divided the people into three companies. Then they entered the camp of the Ammonites during the morning watch and kept attacking until the heat of the day until those who remained were so scattered that no two of them were left together. And the people said to Samuel Who are these men who said is Saul to rule over us? Hand them over to us so we can put them to death. But Saul said No one will be put to death today because today Adonai has rescued Israel. And then Samuel said to the people, Come, let's go to Gilgal and inaugurate the kingship there. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there in Gilgal, before Adonai, they made Saul king. They presented sacrifices as peace offerings before Adonai there, and there Saul and all the people of Israel celebrated with great joy. This chapter brings the transition from Samuel's judgeship to Saul's kingship. And of course, God's providence is very evident to us in hindsight, but undoubtedly wasn't nearly as much so to King Saul or perhaps even to Samuel. Now here's the situation. After a coronation ceremony at Mitzpah, Saul returns home and he resumes a regular life. So why didn't he immediately assume his role as king? Because there were a lot of influential Israelites who either didn't want Saul to be king or just didn't want a king altogether. The main group of dissenters was from Judah and Simeon, the southern tribes, who knew full well that a king chosen from the northern alliance of tribes would, of course, give preference to his constituency, right, to the detriment of those who weren't part of the alliance, namely, Judah and Simeon. And now, among human kings, perhaps his foremost purpose is to be a warlord. Okay. While this is prevalent and essential to all kingdoms, it is not nearly as important As it is to a tribal society. Because in tribal societies there is a never ending battle. Among the clans and the tribes for dominance. Warfare among tribes is a given. Thus a good and timely war. Is the perfect platform. For a prince to prove his worth to be a king. Now, this would be a good time to point out another interesting but, not, but sometimes not so obvious dynamic that's going on here. Monarchies and tribalism don't mix very well. In other words, where is the sovereignty of a tribal leader over his tribe and his duty to to do everything possible to elevate his tribe's status and dominance above the others is at the heart of the tribal system. It's a king's goal to have the unwavering allegiance of all of those who are subject to him and that they should be loyal to him and him alone. And to destroy anybody who might have ambitions to usurp his throne. Further, it was necessary that a king set up a common justice system that all the kingdom obeyed and was administered by the king's men, regardless of family ties and and loyalties. Well, Israel consisted of 12 tribes, each with its own tribal prince who had no interest in giving up any of his sovereignty to a king, Among the tribes, it was the tribal leaders who administered justice. So we have two different governing systems, philosophies, and leadership agendas that are about to butt heads. If Israel was going to have a true and functional monarchy, their tribalism would have to diminish that chance. Now let me give you a modern day parallel so that you can get a good mental picture of why King Saul was doomed to never having peace and to ultimate failure. Early in the 18th century a similar transition from pure tribalism to a monarchy was attempted in the Arabian Peninsula. But a kingship didn't become a reality there until the turn of the 19th to the 20th century. The Saud family in the mid-1700s became the head of a powerful tribe and they dominated the other tribes of uh, central Arabia with the rather typical goal of becoming the preeminent Arab tribe in all of Arabia and eventually the entire Middle East. Now as happens in tribalism, the other tribes fought against them, and so the Saud family's power diminished, and then it rose again, only to diminish and again arise multiple times in, in kind of a wave-like fashion. Eventually, just after 1900, a new generation of the Saud family openly sought to create a monarchy. And for the first time, generally succeeded in their efforts. They used brutal means to put down the constant rebellions of the various tribal leaders who had no interest in having a king over them. Today, the Saud ruling family of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia continues in that battle. Since the religion of Islam is a tribal and warfare-based religion the various tribes of Saudi Arabia who hate the decadent Saudi monarchy who live like rich playboys well, they're trying to constantly overthrow the government of Saudi Arabia it's in this situation that we see the rise of the likes of Osama bin Laden a Saudi rebel In fact, the rulers of the kingdom of Saudi Arabia are generally hated by the tribal Muslims throughout the Middle East because the idea of royalty goes against all their tribal traditions and their Muslim religion. Thus, when oil was discovered... In Saudi Arabia in the 30s, that would bring in vast riches to the coffers of the royal family, the tribal leaders became all the more angry and jealous. And this drove the Saudi monarchy to make alliances with the West. The West wanted and needed oil. The West had powerful militaries. And the king and thousands of his royal Saud family wanted to stay in power. It was a natural alliance. Thus we see this uneasy but necessary relationship between the West and the king of Saudi Arabia. But also the never-ending battles and violence and repression in Saudi Arabia all wrapped around the traditional Muslim-Arab tribal system vying against the hated Saudi monarchy who takes away the tribal leader's sovereignty. This is what King Saul was about to face. And he full well knew it, as did God. Of course, the tribal leaders of Israel, who demanded a king and applauded the choice of Saul of Benjamin saw only the benefits that would anure to themselves. But in the end, things never did work out very well for anybody except Israel's enemies in this arrangement. Now in chapter 11, verse 1, we're introduced to a fellow named Nachash, a king from the territory of Ammon. Now, it's always interesting in the Bible when we leap so suddenly and without warning from one scenario to the next, as here we go directly from Saul's coronation to a war with this king, Nahash. Well, the Dead Sea Scrolls have shed a little bit more light on this particular passage. In the Dead Sea Scroll of Samuel, which was found at Qumran, there's this verse to begin this chapter that was heretofore unknown. Now, it was either added by the essence of Qumran or it was dropped by later Bible translators. There's a lot of speculation as to which it was, so we're not going to debate that here today. Here's that verse. It's known as 4Q, meaning... Cave 4 at Qumran, Samuel, where they found the scroll. Now, Nahash, king of the Ammonites, had been grievously oppressing the Gadites and the Reubenites. He would gouge out the right eye of each of them and would not grant Israel a deliverer. No one was left of the Israelites across the Jordan whose right eye that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, had not gouged out. But there were 7,000 men who had escaped from the Ammonites and had entered Gabesh gilead Then the words, about one month later, appear before the start of the text that we all have in our modern Bibles and that we read today. Now, I'm not sure these extra this extra verse adds a lot, except that it tells us that it was only about a month from the time of Saul's inauguration at Mitzpah until his opportunity to prove himself and establish his merit to be Israel's king by rescuing Yavish Gilead. Now we also see in this passage that Yavesh Gilead had become something like a fortress of last resort for what remained of the tribe of Gads and Reuben's warriors, since they had been chased there by Nahash and his troops. Well now the Ammonites, recall, were the descendants of Lot, nephew to Abraham. Thus they were Semites. They were descendants of Shem and distant cousins of the Israelites. They lived to the east of the territory of Gad and Reuben and their capital city was named Rabat Ammon which interestingly is today known as the modern city of Ammon, Jordan I don't think that's any coincidence there by the way Yavesh Gilead also called Jabesh Gilead was a fortified city Located east, this is the Jordan River here, located east of the Jordan River, in the territory of Gad. Apparently after the remnant of the combined forces of Gad and Reuben fled to Evesh-Gilead for safety, Nakash brought his Ammonite troops up to that city and set up a siege. Now it was obvious to Yevesh Gilead's leadership that they had no hope of winning this battle at their current troop strength. And so they chose the standard option for that era when faced with a, an unwinnable situation. They would surrender with terms. Now such surrender usually had benefits for both sides. The attacking force didn't waste time or resources in battle nor did they heavily damage property that they hoped to acquire. And the besieged didn't die, (laughs) and they didn't lose their homes and livelihoods. But Nahash wasn't a particularly agreeable fellow. His terms were that in return for not annihilating every last resident, of Jabesh Gilead he would blind the right eye of every Israelite male there his stated reason for doing that was to bring disgrace upon all Israel or in most Bibles to bring reproach upon all Israel now you have to understand ancient Middle Eastern terms and culture and mindset To appreciate the savage irony that Nachash is insisting upon here. Although in many translations we'll see the word treaty used. If you make a treaty with us. In fact the Hebrew word is berit which is more usually and properly translated as covenant. A treaty is a covenant. A covenant is a treaty. They're interchangeable terms. Particularly in that era. As I'm sure you'll recall that a covenant was sealed in blood. An animal was sacrificed. It was cut up. And the local God's name was invoked as an oath. Thus the standard biblical terminology was to cut a covenant. Cut is not synonymous for make, make a covenant. It simply incorporates the idea that always took place with a covenant that an animal was cut up in the process. So we cut a covenant. If an animal was not ritually cut up, there was no valid covenant. So Nahash is saying sarcastically that he'll cut a covenant with them all right, but what's going to be cut? To seal the treaty is not an animal, but instead each and every Israelite's right eye. That's what's going to be cut. To have an eye gouged out is one thing. To have your right eye gouged out is another. The right eye of, rather the right side of anything was regarded as the best side, the most powerful side. So to have one's right eye removed brought on great shame. Why was Nachash so intent on inflicting such harm on Israel? He hated them. He absolutely hated Israel. In fact, no specific reason is even given for this hatred. But undoubtedly, it was born centuries earlier when his Ammonite ancestors were ejected from their land by Moses and Joshua. And all over our planet, we'll find wars over land that changed hands, scores, if not hundreds of years ago. We have a similar case going on in Israel today. But what we need to notice in this story is this almost irrational hatred of Israel that is harbored by Nahash. Other than the typical tribal skirmishes that occurred on a regular basis, there is nothing to suggest that Gad or Reuben had been unusually hard on their neighbors to the east, Hamon. So, why was Nahash, king of Ammon, intent on do- doling out such severe retribution against the men of Yavesh Gilead that he saw as a means of symbolically humiliating all of Israel. Rather, you see, this hatred of Nahash is the almost inexplicable kind that we have seen for centuries against the Jewish people and now against the state of Israel. By cutting a covenant, a treaty, with the leaders of Yavesh Gilead, essentially, a vassal agreement was being created whereby the city of Yavesh Gilead would owe tribute to Nechash. It was usual that foreign kings of that era were mainly seeking tribute, another source of income, when they marched against other cities. Most of the time, they were only too happy to allow the current king of that city to stay in this position as long as he bowed down to the conqueror, kept the peace, paid the required taxes and tribute because the keeping the current king in place and city Uh, keeping that current king in uh, in, in his place meant that that city's economic base would stay intact. It would afford him more income. To gouge out the right eye of every male resident of Yavish Gilead would do nothing but greatly reduce the amount of tribute that was even possible. But it is the nature of hatred to be destructively irrational, is it not? We saw it with Pharaoh. We saw it with Hitler. We see it today with Hezbollah, Hamas, Fatah, and the bulk of Islam that's willing to give up anything to destroy Israel everything short of turning Israel over to them, lock, stock, and barrel, has been offered in hopes of achieving peace and every time it's turned down. When about four years ago, Israel gave up the Gaza Strip to uh, the Palestinians, the first thing that the Palestinians did was to go on a rampage and destroy the fabulous greenhouses that Israel had built and grew so much food in. And then they started destroying public buildings, schools, infrastructure that as of now, all of this belonged to them. Then, when they had destroyed almost all of their food-growing capacity, They sat in the remains and complained that they were starving. They had no jobs. And Israel and the world needed to give them food and money. Now that is irrational. That's hatred. Although I'm not a fan of his, I remember seeing a short news clip a few years ago of a fellow named Phil Donahue who was a TV talk show host, where he was holding a kind of a forum on the Israeli-Palestinian issue. And after about an hour of discussion, when it was becoming apparent that utterly no solution was possible that could reasonably satisfy both sides, he just exploded. And he said that in all of his life, He'd never seen such an insane situation where the only thing that seemed to guide the decisions was hatred. The hatred was so intractable that one side was literally willing to destroy itself if it meant they could also destroy the other side. That's the underlying reason here in First Samuel eleven, for Nahash's attack on Yavesh Gilead, his hatred of the Hebrew people. Now in verse three, the leaders of Israel ask Nahash if he will allow them to send to Israel, or rather the leaders of Yavesh Gilead, ask Nahash if he will allow them to send. to to Israel for help and if in uh, seven days none of it's forthcoming then it says well then we'll go ahead and surrender even to those horrible terms now while such an odd request and an agreement from Nakash to allow it is difficult for us to fathom we have to understand that Nakash's purpose in all this was to humiliate. So he was more than happy for Yavesh Gilead to get the news out about what was going on there. Further, I think he suspected that Yavesh Gilead would get no help from Israel and for a very good reason. More than a century earlier, they refused to answer the call to arms to punish the tribe of Benjamin for the sexual attack upon a Levite's concubine that took place in the city of Gibeah which was a major city in the territory of Benjamin. And of course if you recall that resulted in her death. Besides, a siege of a city is a long lasting event. It can be months. So a week is a rather short period of time. Messengers are now sent from Yavesh-Gilead, up here, again the east side of the Jordan. They cross over to the west side and come down to um, Gibeah, pleading for help. Gibeah, the same Gibeah where Saul was living, is where they went. And we're told in verse 4 that the people of Gibeah wailed and cried as they heard the news so loud that Saul could hear it out in the fields. Now this certainly was not a happy day. But why such an unbelievably strong reaction to this news from the people of Gibeah? They were a long way from Jabesh-Gilead. They were in no immediate danger. Matter of fact, there's not even an indication that Nachash had any intention nor had made any threat of crossing the Jordan River to attack any of the tribes on the west side. And since Gibeah was of the tribe of Benjamin and the Yevesh Gilead consisted of Gadites and Reubenites, on the surface it's pretty hard to understand this depth of anguish of the Benjamite residents of Gibeah as to what was going on in Yevash Gilead. I mean, some concern? Yes. But downright despair? No. Doesn't make sense. But here's where history explains yet another Bible story. Turn your Bibles to Judges chapter 20. Judges chapter 20. And we're going to read verses 1 through 11 and then 43 to 46 just for the sake of time. We're going to keep just those few verses. Judges chapter 20, I'm going to read verses the first 11 verses and then skip to verse 43. All the people of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba, including Gilead. And the community assembled with one accord before Adonai at Mitzpah. The leaders of all the tribes of Israel presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God. 400,000 foot soldiers armed with swords. Now the people of Benjamin heard that the people of Israel had gone up to Mitzpah. And the people of Israel said, Tell us, how was this crime committed? The Levite The husband of the murdered woman answered, I came to Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin, I and my concubine, to stay the night. And the men of Gibeah attacked me, and they surrounded the house I was staying in at night. They wanted to kill me, but instead they raped my concubine to death. I took my concubine's body, cut it into pieces... And sent them all throughout the territories belonging to Israel. Because they committed a shockingly obscene and degrading crime in Israel. Look, you are all people of Israel. So discuss what to do and give your advice here and now. And all the people stood up in agreement and said, None of us will go home to his tent or his house. What we will now do to give you is this. We'll draw lots will take ten men out of each hundred throughout all the tribes of Israel and a hundred out of a thousand and a thousand out of ten thousand to collect food food for the others. And when these come to Gibeah and Benjamin, they will avenge the crime that was committed. Thus all the men of Israel joined together in complete agreement and assembled to attack the city. Now jump down to verse 43. They surrounded the men of Benjamin, chased them, and trampled them down across from Gibeah on the east. 18,000 men of Benjamin fell. All of them experienced soldiers. They turned and fled towards the desert to the rock of Ramon, and 5,000 of them were killed on the roads. Then they followed them to Gidom, killed another 2,000. Thus, the total number from Benjamin who fell that day, was 25,000 experienced, sword-bearing soldiers. Let's get a little bit more information. Stay right where you are. We're going to go to Judges 21. I'm going to read the first three verses and then jump to verse 8. The men of Israel had sworn in Mizpah that none of them would let his daughter marry a man from Benjamin. The people came to Bethel and stayed there before God till evening, crying out and weeping, and they said, Adonai. Why has this come about in Israel? Why should there be today in Israel one tribe missing? Jump down to verse 8. Then they asked who from the tribes of Israel had not come up to Adonai at Mitzpah, and they found that none had come from Yavesh Gilead to the camp where the assembly was. Since when the people were counted, none of the inhabitants of Yavesh Gilead were found there so the gathering sent 12,000 warriors there and ordered them go and put the people who live in Yavesh Gilead to death with the sword including women and children completely destroy every man and every woman who has had sex with a man and among the inhabitants of Yavesh Gilead they found 400 young virgins who had not known a man by lying with him and they brought, him, brought them to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. Then the whole gathering sent a message proclaiming peace to the people of Benjamin, who were at the Rock of Ramon. So Benjamin returned at that time, and the people of Israel gave them the women that they had kept alive of the women from Yavesh Gilead. But those weren't enough for them. So there you have it. When many years earlier, all of Israel had gathered in one accord to destroy Benjamin for their Sodom-like behavior at Gibeah when they ravaged to death the Levite's concubine, the city of Yavesh-Gilead refused to join the fight. Thus, after the tribe of Benjamin was decimated by this huge combined tribal army of Israel, the Israelite warriors launched a reprisal against the citizens of Yavesh Gilead for what they considered to be treasonous behavior, and they killed most of the inhabitants. During the process, Israel captured 400 young, unmarried girls from Javesh Gilead, and later turned around and gave them as wives to the few remaining male inhabitants of the city of Gibeah of Benjamin so that the tribe wouldn't die out. The result of this was that Yevesh Gilead and Gibeah had close family ties. Lots of intermarriage had taken place. Most of the inhabitants of the two cities were now closely related by blood. The majority of the children born to the tribe of Benjamin after this judge's incident that we read about had mothers from the tribe of Gad who had lived in Yevash-Gilead and fathers from the tribe of Benjamin who had lived in the Benjamite city of Gibeah. Further, Since Yvesh Gilead had essentially sided with Benjamin, when no one else would, there was now a close bond between these folks, as one could easily imagine. But there was also a less, shall we say, than cordial relationship between Yvesh Gilead and all the rest of Israel, who had mercilessly mercilessly attacked them for merely refusing to participate in a war. So the completely logical place that the messengers would be sent to rescue Jabesh Gilead was to Gibeah of Benjamin, who were actually their family. Interesting, huh? And in many ways, the residents of Gibeah owed a century-old debt of gratitude to the residents of Jevesh Gilead. Now, this obviously also explains this high level of shock and anguish of the residents of Gibeah when they heard the news from the messengers from Yavesh Gilead. See, I mean, the story starts to take on different and deeper dimensions when we understand this, doesn't it? There's going to be a lot more fascinating ties that goes on here in Samuel and Kings that I'm going to point out to you as we go along. Now, verse 5 explains that Saul was out plowing fields with oxen when the messengers arrived at Gibeah, and the wailing was so loud that he heard it when he approached the city. And we're told that upon hearing the nature of the trouble, that he became highly agitated and angry. Now, the usual explanation for this anger that just blew up at him was that it was a righteous anger that resulted from the Spirit of God coming to rest upon him. But when we understand the simple fact that the community that he was part of, Gibeah, and therefore much of his own family, had aunts, uncles, cousins, children, in-laws, close friends, who were under attack and in grave danger at Yavesh Gilead, we have to question whether it was actually a righteous anger that was the result of the Spirit of God coming upon him, or something else. I think it was not the anger, but the resolve to do something about this pending catastrophe, along with a, a new and divine capability to, to lead men to battle. That's what the Holy Spirit gave to him. As a matter of fact, it would have been necessary because there's no evidence that Saul had any leadership skills, let alone military experience. Now, Saul's response is a strange one.
1: He cuts up his
0: oxen. Pretty valuable animals. And he sends, them, sends the pieces off to the other tribes along with the message that they are to muster for battle against Nechash and anyone who refuses will have this happen to their oxen along with the not so subtle hint that they may personally suffer the same fate as their oxen. Now where might Saul have thought of the idea to do this thing? Open your book back up to Judges again let's take a look at Judges chapter 19 so just go back a chapter Judges chapter 19 and we're going to read from verse 25 to the end however the men wouldn't listen to him so the man took hold of his concubine and brought her out to them they raped her and abused her all night long only at dawn did they let her go at daybreak the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her husband was and she was still there when it grew light when her husband got up opened the doors of the house and went out to go his way he saw the woman lying there with her hands stretched out towards the door he said to her get up let's go there was no answer so he loaded her body on a donkey and began his trip home and on arrival to his house he got a knife took hold of his concubine's body, cut her up into 12 pieces, and sent them to all the regions of Israel. Everyone who saw it said, from the day the people of Israel came up from Egypt until now, never has such a thing happened or been seen. What are we going to do about it? Talk it over and decide. As we conclude today, let me point out again, that all these Bible stories didn't happen in isolation. There were reasons these people did what they did. But this decision to cut up the oxen doesn't bode very well for Saul. What that Levite did in dismembering his concubine's body and sending it all over Israel is so disgusting it's hard to quantify. That Saul would choose to use the same message only with oxen is certainly not as blood-curdling or full of sin, but it isn't very edifying either. Don't think that the people of Israel didn't perfectly understand the implication and the parallel from this. This was for sure Saul's intention. We have this occurring even from the same city as to where the concubine incident happened. And we have Benjamin and Yavish Gilead again being the central characters and places in this incident. Always watch for the patterns in the Bible. That's what will lead you to the truth.